to The Leadership Guide, the show that takes you from peak performer to legendary leader by helping you unlock your heroic potential to emerge into who you were meant to be. This is not your typical show on leadership. We have real, raw, unplanned, and unedited conversations with individuals from a wide variety of industries and expertise to get into the reality of what leadership actually looks like in the world, not just theories you read about in books. We leave the conversations unedited because leadership is not about perfection. And because this show is unplanned, you get unique insights and you get to see a side of these individuals that they don't share anywhere else. On today's episode, we have a conversation with Jared Surf and discuss the role and dangers of being a teacher, the art of writing, the creative process in business and life, and how it all ties to leadership. I'm your host, Cody Dakota, founder of The Leadership Guide, a member of the Forbes Coaches Council, and finalist for the Extraordinarian Award for Coaches with Ideas that Can Change People, Businesses, and the World for the Better for My Ideas on Leadership. We are sponsored by KDDM Inc., your one-stop shop for growing your business. If you're an entrepreneur, you'll want to talk with my friend Tony Kaufman, CEO of KDDM Inc., and her team to help you clarify your message, get seen, get heard, and get sales. Because most entrepreneurs, I've been here myself, get stuck in the digital and social media world and don't know how to stop losing money and leads. KDDM Inc. is a world-class digital marketing agency that offers professional video production by TX Filmworks and also offers amazing U.S.-based virtual assistants, including phenomenal people like Jordan, who's helped me in the client fulfillment section, Dee, who's a phenomenal project manager, and Nikki, who's one of my producers and has helped me in so many areas. So KDDM Inc., brings the best tools and resources in the industry for entrepreneurs with their done-for-you and done-with-you solutions. Thanks, KDDM Inc., for helping entrepreneurs reach their heroic potential. If you would like to be a proud sponsor of The Leadership Guide show, please go to www.theleadership.guide and fill out the Contact Us form. We'll get in contact with you shortly. And don't forget, Stay tuned to the end of the episode to discover how to join the League of Legendary Leaders, an association of leaders with the goal to raise $100,000 monthly to support nonprofit causes which are currently looking to impact the world and make it better for future generations. Now, on to the show. My writing teacher, Jason Ockert, he said, I think it was our senior year, the saddest thing for him as a teacher was the understanding of the revelation of how many of his students, let me rephrase that, the saddest thing for him as a teacher was the moment he realized that most of his students would not continue to write, that they would take up this thing while they were with him, this moment they enjoyed, this element of creativity in their lives, and the stories that would spring from that. And then when they graduate, that book would close. They'd put it away and occasionally return to it, look at it and smile, but otherwise move on with their life. And here he is as a teacher trying to instill or enrich or 
give you the tools you need to make it a ritual, make it a practice. He was deeply of the mind that I'm not going to break a story down. We're not going to work on character today. We're not going to work on scene today. You're going to write story. We're going to find your voice. We're going to figure out how you tell this and why. And out of that, we'll start to shape structure and other elements. But let's first understand who you are, where you are, and where you're at with this craft that you're working on. So to spend all that time and passion and dedication and then to learn, oh, you're not doing this anymore was heartbreaking to him. And he said, look, if any of you go to grad school, which I hope all of you do, do it for something you love, which of course I hope is writing, but even if it isn't, do it for something you love. Because Why do you think he said that? Hmm? Why do you think he said that? Because you'll go out of your mind if you don't. I don't know if you've been to grad school, but it's a brutal experience. And it is so easy to want to leave, to quit. You go broke very quickly. You treat your body terribly because you're usually working to pay off everything that you're spending on tuition and where you live, in my case, Los Angeles, which is... Not, not a cheap place to live at all. <laughs> my rent was $1,800 a month. Yeah. One bedroom? I, yep. Studio. Yeah. Sounds right. I could have lived south of the campus. The rent was a third of the price north of it. However, I would have had to take bullets out of the side of the building. Man, it's yeah. brutal. The, the housing economy is, well, not just in California, especially in California, but in, all over the country, it's, it's getting really pricey. It's rough. You know, I live in New York. When I came back, I considered briefly going back into the city. I looked at the prices and said, I kind of like trees more. <laughs> and even when I returned to where I am now, which is Westchester County, north of Hudson River Valley, it took a while to find a place that was reasonable. Here you're looking at fourteen, fifteen hundred just in rent for a one bedroom. And this is starting about, I guess, seven years ago. It's probably higher now. So it took me a while to find where I am, but I look outside my room, my window right now, of my living room anyway, and there's the aqueduct trail that goes all the way down to the city. I walk out my door, go up the hill, and there's 26 miles for me to hike if I want. That's pretty so, nice. I don't usually do all of it because it takes a <laughs> bit of time, but I find deer. There are hawks in the trees. There's usually a groundhog trundling around outside or a badger. And it's quiet. And after having lived in cities for most of my life, it's kind of nice. So to answer your question, having been and working as a teacher myself now, particularly in the creative fields, you find that spark, that thing your students enjoy, and you want that to thrive. But it is so easy to stifle it. It is so easy to be lost in the scarcity of resources, of time, of money, of energy, of mind to give and to dedicate, because the story of any kind is a hungry thing. It will eat you because it wants life. It's not parasitic, it just wants life. And if you don't sustain yourself, and I think this is true of any enterprise you take on, whether it's a book, a screenplay, a business, having a child, you have to be well-grounded and able to care for yourself, too. Or else there will come a time when you collapse and nothing, I mean, nothing gets done. I, I hate, as a writer, 
the idea that suffering is supposed to fuel any kind of creativity. It doesn't. Suffering is pain. What does pain do? It debilitates. It lets you know something's wrong, but beyond that, it just debilitates. I have endured a spinal injury and surgery. I have watched my father nearly drown in his own blood. My grandmother die of heart attacks and strokes. Lost both of my other grandparents in the midst of all that. Did I write much during any of that time? No. No. What I wanted most of that time was morphine. Because when I recovered from my spinal surgery, I was undelauded. And after three months, I went cold turkey off of that because I was allergic at the end. And that was a nightmare. Yeah, I can imagine. I didn't sleep for a week. I did not sleep for a week. I went to the doctor and he said, look, we could do rehab or we could try Lunesta first. That's your pick. Let's try Lunesta first because rehab is expensive and and uncomfortable. This is hopefully better and less addictive than most other sleeping pills. So cross our fingers, let's give it a try. But it took me months, months, I would say, after all of that to begin writing. Because it's not the pain and the suffering that inspires. It's how, you live your, it's how you live your life after. It's what you choose to do with your life. When I, when I did the pitch at the NMS, I thought for a while about how and what I would open that with. And eventually I came to the line, we all tell ourselves stories of who we are and why. But we forget that we have the power to define them. Because we do. I'm standing there in the hospital realizing that my father has never held my hand before. If he has, I don't in my 35 years remember it. And this is perhaps the last time. And is this it? And my mom was on the phone with her sister finding out that my grandmother has had two heart attacks, which will be followed by more and subsequently strokes. I don't know that right now in that moment, but I know something's troubling her as the doctors are running in, trying to extract his arm, his nails from mine hand and I just wanted that morphine in that moment because it makes everything go away the pain doesn't matter it's still there but it doesn't matter and it wasn't physical pain the nails in the arm or whatever but the emotional pain when you once your mind realizes there's a thing that can shut all that off you want it again and that was the worst part because the other thing I didn't do like I said when I was on the morphine was right. It's not that I didn't want to write. I didn't care enough to. I didn't hear the characters. I didn't feel them. It took months to drag myself all of, out of all of that and to realize that I had a choice. I could continue to wallow in all of this, to wonder why, or I could try to find joy in something and to strive toward that, whatever it was. Now with that, what was it that made you realize that you had that choice? <laughs> In the beginning of any tragedy, you always go through that checklist of who's your friend and who isn't because there are people who call and people who don't. And then later on, there are people who ask why you didn't call or tell or say, hey, I wish I had been there. What can I do for you now? And that's its own battle. But I was talking with my graphic designer, Jenna, and she's been through a lot herself. So when she says the line, God doesn't give you anything you can't handle, I begin to wonder, perhaps perhaps you could think I could take a little less, maybe? <laughs> but I chewed over that a bit. And then a while. 
there, when I was younger, this is 20, when I was in my 20s, let's say 21, somewhere around there. So 14 years ago, to age myself specifically, I was in Australia. We were hiking up the Queen Vic Alps. It was heading toward the center of winter and becoming colder and colder by the day. And I, stubborn mule that I was, insisted on being at the front of the pack, leading everyone up this mountain. I have asthma. It's cold. That hurts. I A had lot. In- yes, I had injured my knee at Taiki and Qigong the week before. I had Vicodin with me. Did I take it? No. I had pulled a ligament and done other terribly stupid things to my knee. And here I am hiking up a mountain as we're progressing toward a blizzard. And I'm in the front of the pack. This is dumb. But (laughs) I needed to be at the front of the pack to prove something to myself. Until I realized, I can get up the I can get to the summit one way or the other. I can be anywhere in the group. I can be the last person there. I will still arrive at the summit. The only thing forcing me to be at the front of the pack is myself and my ego, and my pride, and the insistence that I prove something to someone who I don't know, but that I do it. I was reading through a collection of poems by Rumi, R-U-M-I, mm-hmm. and there's one in particular that struck me at the time, The Lame Goat. I, uh, give me a second and I'll pull it up. Okay. I didn't think I would mention it, but the book is right there on my shelf. And, you know, sometimes the best things that come up are the ones you aren't planning for. That is quite true. I'm being silly. I have the internet in front of me. (laughs) Whatever works, works, right? Ah, This is, my mind is toasted. The lame goat, not the lame gort. (laughs) Here we go. The lame goat. You have seen the herd of goats going down to the water. The lame and dreamy goat brings up the rear. There are worried faces about that one, but now they're laughing, because look, as they return, that one is leading. There are many different ways of knowing. The lame goat's kind is a branch that traces back to the roots of presence. Learn from the lame goat and lead the herd home. I love it. What do you take away from that one? We try to tell ourselves who we are so narrowly. I am this, I am that, I am defined by these few things. I am suffering this, I am enduring this, I'm tired, I'm sleepy, I'm just this. We reiterate these things like a ritual every day. And unless you begin to open a book and start writing them down or tracking them going, wait a minute, how often do I tell myself these little lies and define myself by them? It's so easy to make yourself small in those moments, to lose sight of everything else that you are. The kind of, the flip to, or not the flip, but I would say the the more open-ended take on that same idea of, I'm trying to figure out how to articulate this, and I do tend to think alone, so forgive me that. You're fine. 
thinking is a good thing. I think more people need to think. It would certainly, that, that is, to quote Gandhi, what do you think of civilization? I think it would be a very good idea. <laughs> or, pardon me, Western civilization. I think it would be a very good idea. Here we are. <laughs> the other poem that I chewed over repeatedly in that time was Rumi's Who Says Words With My Mouth? It's a, more of an inquiry, but it's, a, it's one that makes you think about exactly who you are, where you are, and why. All day I think about it, then at night I say it. Where did I come from and what am I supposed to be doing? I have no idea. My soul is from elsewhere, I'm sure of that, and I intend to end up there. This drunkenness began in some other tavern. When I get back around to that place, I'll be completely sober. Meanwhile, I'm like a bird from another continent, sitting in this aviary. The day is coming when I fly off, but who is it now in my ear who hears my voice? Who says words with my mouth? Who looks out with my eyes? What is the soul? I cannot stop asking. If I could taste but one sip of an answer, I could break out of this prison for drunks. I didn't come here of my own accord, and I can't leave that way. Whoever brought me here will have to take me home. This poetry, I never know what I'm going to say. I don't plan it. When I'm outside the saying of it, I get very quiet and rarely speak at all. Another really powerful poem there. What was it that you were getting out of that one specifically during that time? Rumi writes a great deal about emptiness, about casting off and throwing away the things that are not truly, genuinely, and actually there, or that we believe are, but they're more a thing, a trapping, clothes we put on, things to wear, to perform, to play at ourselves, Reading Rumi makes me think back to when I saw Bradbury at the LA Times Book Fair in Los Angeles shortly before he died. And he rambled on a good long while, and it was a beautiful moment. I listened to him and I thought, this is how you write. But at the end of it, he said the following line, which I've repeated many times. He said, man is the flesh of God as he moves through the universe. That there is more to you than you think is there. You have to be willing and able to see, to see, feel, to perceive it. And whether you want to talk about that in the terms of the divine or what else, whatever words or language you would have to use for it, those are, they're numinous. They're ways you have of reaching the idea, but they're not the idea itself. It's like Korzybski saying the fingers, or pardon me, I'm confusing a cone with Korzybski, although they say the same thing. Korzybski's line was the, moon, the map is not the territory. The Zen cone is the finger is not the moon. Both say the same thing. You don't need my hand to show you where the moon is. It's right there. You don't need the well's reflection to show me where the moon shines. It's right there. But it helps to be reminded. That's very powerful. And there's, there's so much that all of this ties to in the world of leadership. Just, just me thinking with the, the story of the lame goat in society, there's so many times where we, one, you have the lame goat themselves, where they are lame and most people would let that define them. But that lame goat doesn't. That lame goat goes forward, leads the pack anyways. And so often we allow the, the things that have happened to us or the things that we tell ourselves to define us, and the lame goat doesn't. But along with that, 
he also has the the community of other goats that are there with him saying oh look at him he's lame how weird how odd right who defines the goat as lame in that sense we we call him that that is the name of the title we give him and having spoken with shrone yesterday there was a great deal of conversation about who chooses what names for whom and why and the power in that but then you can look at as well as okay we might call the goat lame but what is the wisdom he has in his existence what knowledge does he or she possess to that that exactly. moment of experience has provided to them, or at least their openness or willingness to think of it like that. Definitely, my bro- yeah. My brother's autistic. When he was young, we were told, put him in a clinic, put him in an attic, put him somewhere else. Just don't bother taking care of him beyond that, because he'll never grasp an abstract thought. Which is a horrifying thing, I think, not just to tell a family, but for a family to try and confront. That, to me, that's such a a terrible flaw that was in our, our medical system. And I'm sure it's still here. There's there's definitely changes that are happening around it, but it's still alive. I feel. Listen to episode eight of here be tigers. And you'll hear a conversation I have with Dave Geiger, a fellow who's been in remission from schizophrenia for 14 years now, about 15. Wow. But the initial, the initial emergence of that, led to a horrifying moment in his, li- in his life that he has spent the entirety since of his existence since then trying not to let define him, trying to break out of and grow out of that and find not just peace and redemption, but an existence that allows him to give back and provide for others. The episode we have rolling out soon with Andre Rodriguez, this is a fellow who ended up in prison, watched his family come in to see him and had to look at that moment in his child's eyes and in his sister's as they realized he's not coming back with us. He's staying here. And he had to think and understand, no, this is my choice. I put myself here. I might've done the right thing or the thing I thought was right at the time, but these are the consequences of my actions. They don't hurt just me. And I didn't truly understand the kind of pain that would bring to others until right now. But I know I never want to be here again. It's powerful. You can look at that moment and go, I deserve this. I earned it. This is who I am and where I'll be now. Or you can sit and ask, who else can I be? What else, not what else is left to me, but what, what more is there to my life that I have not yet found? And I think the, the parable of the lame goat in that sense is putting is, is one, well, it's a lot of what Rumi does. He asks you to put aside your expectations. And mind you, he grows out of a school of Sufi mysticism that was heavily tied into Buddhist theory and philosophy of the time. So there's a great deal of overlap and syncretism in there. So when you see Rumi talking about emptiness, you also have to think about the Zen koans where they present the idea of emptying your cup so there's room to put something else in. It is perhaps of more value. Mind you, I've tried sitting meditation. It drives me crazy. (laughs) I get so bored so quickly. I have to move. I can swire walk on the trail. That allows my mind to be empty and present in there. And that seems paradoxical that you can be both empty and present. I don't think it's paradoxical at all. I think that you have to empty your mind of a lot of the different things that go through it in order to be present. I think that's part of the problem in our society right now is that we're so focused on putting more and more into our brain that we're not able to become present. 
we we turn to social media we turn to videos we turn to games we turn to just basically nonsense just to put stuff there and it completely disallows us to become present I was watching Beautiful Boy on the Flight Back, which is based off of a true story told from two different points of view, the father and the son who suffered from meth addiction and miraculously survived. But there's that moment where the son is testifying to, I think it's AA, and not AA, but the equivalent for meth and other drug addiction. And he says, I was lying in the hospital and someone asked me what my problem is. And I said, I'm a meth addict. And he said, no, that's how you're treating your problem. And... This is why suffering does not lead toward creativity. Suffering is just stimuli. Suffering is pain. It is just putting more and taking on more onto yourself that you can't get away from. When I finally, in December of that year, which was the end of five years of constant hell of many kinds, I haven't gone into the entirety of it, but it started five years. That five years began with my dog slowly dying of cancer for a year and having to treat her bleeding out of a tumor in her skull every day. And you don't know what death smells like until it creeps up slowly on you every day. Then you know what the smell of death is. And it's inescapable. I was... Walking on the trail, I had written the short story, which turned into a book that I had revised in order to graduate and then put an appendix to saying, here's everything I would change, so please allow me to pass because I know the book itself is terrible. (laughs) It's 450 pages that I have not edited at all once over eight months. This is just a god-awful idea, but it's all I had the time for. So here's my 30-page appendix of everything I would try differently and make right. And over the years, it changed and evolved a few times until one day I discovered, oh, I wrote three books, but I can't make it three books because there's no real ending to the first one that makes it a book that you put down and say, okay, great, where's the next? And I knew that. I also knew no publisher was going to take a thousand-page omnibus and go, hey, sure, here's money. Go do. So I was stuck when all of this came around. And here I am going on the trail, trying again to write, nothing's working. And then one day I wake up, I wake up out of this dream and occasionally I'll have these, just incredibly vivid dreams that I wake up right out of and go, I have to write this down. I don't know what it is or why, but it is there in my mind and I have to retain it somehow before it slips away. So I wrote it as best I could. And then I took out my voice recorder, which is my preferred method of capturing things because I talk faster than I write and record as much as I could remember. And then I sat down and went, what the fuck? Because it had nothing at all to do with what I was writing. But in my heart, I felt that it did somehow. And that's a choice you make right there. Do I listen to my mind that's screaming critically, this isn't right? Or do I listen to my heart that's going, shut up, be still, be quiet, be quiet, and wait for the right time? You will find it. I had been writing enough to know, even if I don't know now, or Sid Field, the screenwriting teacher, used to say, Even if you are confused right now, it will lead toward clarity eventually. His phrase, of course, was, confusion is the first step toward clarity. He would always say it with such confidence, despite not believing it half the time. (laughs) Which I think was the point. He was trying to model the experience. So here I am trying to go on the trail the day after this dream. And it's, I'll describe it as best I can quickly. It was a 
king and a prince. There's a coronation ceremony occurring. They're walking out and there's this big explosion in a plaza as the paparazzi and the cars and the cameras. They all scatter. And the father's looking for his son. He's looking for his son. He can't find him anywhere. Mind you, his son's 16. So gets lost in a crowd easily. And he didn't want to be here in the first place. So maybe he just ran off. And he sees him finally. And there he is. And he father reaches out reaches out, tries to grab onto him, but gets his hand smacked away by someone running past him. Can't find his son again, looks a second time, and it's not the 16-year-old, it's the five-year-old son. And even in my dream of... Jared, I lost you there. Uh Uh-oh. This moment, regardless of what else is happening right now. Hey, Jared, I lost you for a second there. So I got... He he reached out for his son. Sure. And it was the five-year-old. He reaches out for his son and it's the five-year-old. And I, even in the dream, I was, begin- I was wondering, is this a second time this has occurred now when, this is five, when the son is five and there's this moment of terrorism, of fear again at 16? Or is this just how he sees his son, even in this moment right now? It might be a terrified 16-year-old, but what he reaches for, what he tries to save and protect is that boy who's still five in his mind. Even in my dream, that thought occurred to me. If I don't know which disease, and I don't have to know, because they're both true in their own ways. So let's go with it and see what happens next. And he finally manages to grab a hold of his son and the teenager berates him, you can't let them see you like this, you're the king. You have to protect, you have to lead. And the father's resort is, I don't care, you're my son. So above all else, everything else, who I am and what I'm supposed to be, none of that matters more than you being my son and me being the one that has to protect you right now. All else is irrelevant. And at that point I woke up and wrote it down, and then went, what the fuck? Because there is no king, there is no kingdom, there is no prince in my story anywhere. Mind you, the main character of my book, Adam, carries around a copy of The Little Prince in his pocket. And he has had this, this has been a note in my work for years, and I've never really thought about why. But that dynamic between father and son, that exists between him and his father. But of course, they're not a king and a prince, and that's so here I am, I'm confused, I'm struggling. This thing wants to be in the story, but has no place. And again, I can shut it down. I can go, this isn't right, this doesn't work. Or I can be quiet, I can be present, and I can be empty and aware. So I go on the trail, because I know there, I am ready and prepared, and it's a ritual for me. I know it is easier for me in this place and this time to be in that state of mind. I have spent years working on that. Because usually there's so much fear and expectation when you write. Am I going to find something today? Am I going to write nothing? Am I going to work the same sentence over and over and over again and come of bare and empty? That's terrifying. You want to think of yourself as good and capable of what you do, and that's failure. But it isn't. It's just part of the everyday of the practice. Failure leads to success, just like confusion leads to clarity. Because there is that failure and success are an economy that don't exist. It's like saying childbirth, or it's like saying pregnancy is non-existence. And I'm not going to get into any of the abortion debate, but the thing in gestation is still there in some sense. However you want to define that, there's a thing there. Yeah. However you want to frame it, if it is present in your life, it may not have a name even. You may not even want to name it for fear of what that might do. There are different cultures and rituals that refuse to provide names for children until a certain point in time, or fear what that might invoke or bring. So yes, there's a thing emerging, taking shape, forming, 
and you don't know what it's going to become. It might become nothing, but you never know that. And if you choke it with expectations, if you stifle it, and I realize the imagery that emerges if you try to pair these two visuals together, but as my own coach says, writing is like childbirth. Creating is like childbirth because it's long and painful and it takes a lot out of you. And there's not at all to dishonor the, the difficulty any woman goes through in bearing a child. There are differences in that experience. But the parallel of duration and sacrifice is quite similar from what I found sharing these stories. Definitely. And, and really in many phases of life, whether it's writing a book, whether it's having a child, whether it's starting a business, whether it's leading a company, whether it's, you know, creating friendships, even there, there's always that, that oh, sure. phase of something being brought forth and it takes time and there's pains along the way. And you don't know what will come out of all of it, but you're hoping that everything comes out right. Those first few months of running a business where everything's in the red and you're just going further and further in thinking, okay, when does this flip around? It has to, right? Things change, right? More clients will come. We're doing everything we're supposed to. It may, it may not, but you'll never know in that moment for certain. You try though. This whole week goes by and I'm struggling with where's the kingdom in my world? There's no place and no time for it. Then I pull out a map and think, well, there's a narrative of things that occurred before everything in the story now. And there are parts of that world that aren't defined yet. I suppose in this portion here, a kingdom could be with a king and a prince. And there is a revolution, a rebellion of sorts. So what if that explosion occurs at the moment in time when the fight reaches the capital of some far and remote place, something tied to the power and the way things were that's been, that is now being usurped? I've told the story of the usurpers to some degree, but not of those who were in power and in place, and perhaps even unaware of the terrifying and horrifying things they were inflicting upon others elsewhere. I don't know any of this for certain, but it's possible. It could be. What if? And this is the leap. I love discovering and finding. There's joy for me in learning more of the story in the world and sharing that. That's what gives life to the characters and and the world they live in, the things they engage in, what they sacrifice, what they strive for. Gabriel Pena, my writing teacher, used to say, if you're not surprising yourself, you're not surprising your reader. And when my students in my writing classes at USC would ask, how do we get an A? I would say, learn something and share it well. If you have not learned anything, if you've not reached an awareness you were not at before, you have maybe a B-plus paper. If I'm an advisor and you're my client, you should be somewhere beyond where you were when you came to me. You should have a better idea of who you are as a business, of who you need to provide for, of what you can do next. We'll figure out the tactics and strategy and all that other stuff, but that understanding, that discovery, that realization, there's so much joy and fuel and energy in that moment that drives, with which to drive things forward. So here I take the fear. I won't get anything done. These are expectations. I believe these things. I'm telling myself these stories. I'm afraid this will happen this way. I expect things to go that way. All of those will limit and narrow where your mind could be, what you could perceive or see or feel in that moment. But I know if I go on the trail, I'll throw them away. I'll empty the cup out because I've created that ritual and that habit and that practice. No matter who I am or where I'm at, if this is a moment I can engage in, I take the cup, I throw it out. 
Let the critical mind be silent. And practice is such a tremendous part of this, however and whatever you do in your life. And I think as a leader, it's essential. I definitely think so too, that it's that, that period where you have to stop and self-reflect and you have to reflect on the situations going on and not stop yourself at all the things that the, the world is telling you or your team even is telling you or your bosses are telling you or whatever it is. You have to, I think, really open up yourself to that curiosity like you're saying and in that moment where you allow the questions of what if that's where possibilities begin to open up i think that a lot of people throw themselves off of the the curiosity trail um kind of like you were saying at the the very beginning of this conversation with your teacher where he he looked back at his students saying that he he was it made him sad to watch so many of them go off the trail of writing in the future. He knew that many of them wouldn't continue on that path. The same thing happens with all of humanity, I feel. We have so many possibilities that are laid out in front of us, and we, we cut ourselves short for one reason or another. We put labels on ourselves, or we allow others to put those labels on ourselves. And then we don't allow that curiosity to really flourish into what could be. And I think that that's a huge determiner in the, the difference between long-term success and complete failure. One of my students, B, she's 18 now, just turned 18, and she's looking to enroll in colleges for writing. And she says she has this fiction story she wants to tell, and she began to tell me a bit about it. But then she said, I'm struggling with just wanting to write, just trying to, finding the desire to, the, the urge to, and sustaining it. I said, look, we'll get to the story. But first, let's find a way to put joy back into this for you. Because you need to have that every time you try. Regardless of the outcome, you need to find joy in this. So I asked her to take some medium that she wasn't particularly good at. I, I'm terrible at watercolors. I've tried. I, I can't stand the lines. I can never get the, the distillations or the dilutions right. It's, but it's almost better that I remain terrible at it for the following reason. I have no expectations when I try to paint with watercolors. I never know what's going to happen. So when I sit down there with the canvas and the paint and the brush, I'm just trying. I'm just playing. I'm just there waiting to see what happens or what I can derive from this. And I'm always pleasantly surprised by the weird little things I learn, even if it's this tiniest little bit of mastery or the, oh, I didn't think those two colors would result in that reaction. Fascinating. Let's play with that and see what I see, play, see what emerges out of that. Is that now a flower as opposed to the tree I was trying to make? Or is that no longer a person, but a goldfish? Okay. <laughs> Not what I intended, but we knew that wasn't going to happen anyway. So let's keep going with this. With what you just said, what it, it reminds me of, I um, one of the books I love um, and, and other businesses out there that I love is called The One Thing, um, which is fascinating. But one of the things they, they talk about is what is the purpose of a goal? And so many people think the purpose of a goal is to reach that goal. 
when what they say is that the purpose is the goal is to act right in the moment. I, I used to try to say, I'm going to do a chapter a month. And this isn't to denigrate this because if there's one thing you learn, if there's any one thing you learn as a teacher, we all think quite differently. And your primary role as an educator is to help others refine how they think. Well, first to realize how they think and then how to refine it. So I can find what works well for me and know that, but I will have to help you as a student come up with the tools that are right for you to do this. But for me, setting deadlines was never useful because I would always try to satisfy them as opposed to trying to find the thing I was supposed to be doing. And the day I finally gave up on deadlines and instead went, okay, I just finished chapter 13. I feel like there are some beats and choreography in this fight, this battle that are unclear to me. And I could very well go on the trail tomorrow, dedicate my time there tomorrow to finalizing the choreography of that. And it might come out well. It might be terrible. I might be incredibly aggravated by the end of that for missing what I know will eventually be there. Or I could go and think and realize, you know what? I know the big beats. I know everything important and essential that happens here. And I know that for me, those fine details will come when I return and edit and finalize later. So knowing that, knowing how my mind works and thinks, why am I going to drive myself crazy doing what is not best and right for me now, when instead I could on Thursday go on the trail and say, hey, here's chapter 15, and I have an idea for how it begins, and let's see where that goes. I have a sense of what the first few beats are, but I want to discover and find out and be open to what's there. And I was, this is the Wednesday between the Tuesday and Thursday when I usually write. I'm talking to my coach and I was, I was deeply in the irritation and the frustration and aware that I had driven myself to that point, that the only reason I was angry and upset is that I had set a set, of, a set goals for myself that I had not satisfied. Had I done plenty of work, had I achieved many other things on the way there? Yes. But none of those mattered to me because I was so busy being focused on the thing that I had set up as an artificial device, as a prop, as a rule with which to make myself happy. As soon as I threw that away and looked back at what I had actually done, oh, right, I did plenty today. And that's fine. Was it what I exact was it exactly as I intended or expected? No, but it was the thing that had to happen then for me to get to where I'm going next. And that's incredibly liberating to stop telling myself I must, I have to, I should. And instead go, I wonder if, I would like, what if, could we perhaps to think in terms of potential instead of limitations or demands or insistencies. I'm not one for lesson plans and mantra by and by, but you have to be aware of how you think of the stories you tell yourself. And from my own experiences, I was deeply into the mind where I would think in terms of I must, I should, today will. There's no room in that state of mind for anything else to occur, for you to be aware or open to anything. Because you're so busy dedicating yourself to the very few narrow things you think that day is supposed to provide for you. And whoever you run into becomes, when you run into people, it then becomes a question of, oh, are you valuable to me as I try to satisfy these limited goals and expectations 
yes or no? Yes, cool. Let's talk. No, get out of my way. And that's a terrible place to be in because yeah. people have so much worth and you may not even realize what their worth is to you in that moment, but a year down the line, two years down the line, five years down the line, 10 years down the line, that person could be the difference that you're looking for. I, I still kick myself today. I was on the trail June, oh, was it last year already? Time flies when you're old. <laughs> Which you're not old. Don't don't even. You're not even yeah. close to old. I'm being marginally <laughs> sarcastic, but I have reached that point in time where things collapse into large chunks without when you don't think about them, and then you have to kind of look back and go, "Wait, when exactly did that occur?" Oh, right. I was on the trail, caught in a rainstorm, and this fellow picked me up, a college student studying law, and drove me back home. And somewhere along the way, in our conversation about his thesis on environmental ethics and me suggesting people for him to read and work with on that. I left one of my gloves in the car. Didn't even realize it. I'm walking down that same trail November, I want to say, maybe late October. It's getting dark out. It's cold. I'm beginning to come down with what will be 15 weeks of bronchitis. And this woman comes walking out to me as she's wheeling out her trash and says, did you, did you lose a glove? And I stand there for a moment thinking, yeah, I mean, probably. <laughs> I've lost of gloves. I don't know if this particular one is mine, but in all likelihood that it is, sure, let's find out. And sure enough, she shows me the glove and I think, and she says, well, it was in my son's car. And, you know, he said that he had dropped you off, but he wasn't quite sure where you lived. and. I was in the middle of writing scene, so I said thank you, and it was very nice of you, and tell him I said thanks. Somewhere in the back of my mind, though, was the sense of, this woman seems quite sad about something. I can feel that. There's just that demeanor. This en- I hate the word energy. It's so nebulous. <laughs> but she's radiating sadness of yeah. a kind. I don't know what kind, but I can feel it. It is palpable. And part of me wants to inquire and to provide comfort for that. And part of me is going, no, writing, you have an idea, keep going. And that's the louder part of the time. So we talk a little bit. About a third of a half a block later, something like that, I go, I should have picked up a card from her. I should have given her my card. So I'd have some way to send them thanks. And then two blocks down, I think, who saves a glove from a random stranger? And how many days has she gone out there delivering the garbage to the edge of the driveway with that glove in her hand because she didn't have to go back inside to retrieve it. She had it with her. How many days had she had that glove with her in the hopes that she would find me to return it to me, a stranger that her son had met once to drive home during a rainstorm? How kind a person is that? So what happened? I don't know because I did not give her my car, nor did I ask her one. And I, I have been on the trail many a time since, and I've seen neither of them again. But I think about that sadness she had around her when she handed that glove to me. And I wonder why something so small and trivial, or what would seem so small and trivial to, to me, a thing her son had done as a favor, mattered to her now. 
And then I think about how he told me of the years prior to law school where he had suffered from heroin addiction. And I think about the drug addicts I know and have known in my life. And then I don't know what I would have said to her. But I know I should have been there to say something. If nothing else, I should have been there to say, you are an incredibly kind person. And I appreciate you for that. And I am grateful for this. Just to honor and acknowledge who she was in that moment. Would it have mattered much to me? Would it have been much work for me? Probably not, but I don't know what that would have. And yes, there are layers of supposition here. But again, this is all I have to work on. Because I didn't give her my card. I didn't ask for hers. I didn't think about until the moment it passed what kind of thank you I would send because I wasn't present or there or aware enough in the moment. I was preoccupied with what I intended and expected to do that day in that life. But it makes me wonder now, even now. Why don't you go back? That's my question. I don't remember the house. I remember it vaguely. I remember the Roughly, I think there's, there's, a, there's a, a yield sign at an intersection near where they are. And I have occasionally found people walking outside and inquired to them about the neighbors, but I don't even remember what the house looks like. When I'm in that creative state of mind, I am highly open and receptive to many things. But the short-term memory, the long-term memory, they all, take us to, they all go to sleep. There's so much, Sid Stiebel, the old mystery writer, one day in class, in our story structure class, he used to say, I don't know how you take all this chaos in your mind and make it into a story. <laughs> the answer is it takes up a great deal of space. And when I'm engaged in it, it's one of the reasons, for instance, I don't answer my phone when I write. Because I know that for me, I can't be there for whoever's on the other side when I'm in that state of mind. I used to, when I was younger, fight with other people about that until I said, no, it's better to be upfront and honest. Here's who I am. Here's how I work. Here are the two days I, can, I need to myself to do this. I'm receptive in there and available to you everywhere else in the week. But these two days I need from me. And that's, that goes back to knowing who you are, how you think, and to honoring that. Because when you honor yourself, you should also be able to honor others as well. I think I need- that's really important to do as a person because you need to be able to express yourself other, and you also need to recognize other people need to be able to express themselves too. And if you can figure out how both parties can express themselves to the fullest, you guys end up creating a better relationship. And that relationship can take off to so many different great places if you allow both parties to be able to express themselves the right way. At the end of the day, whatever you're doing, if you're writing a story, if you're running a business, if you're just building your friends, your family, future relationships, it does come down to trust and to being open and available and vulnerable. And... You would think that as someone who writes and understands characters, who has a multitude of them in their head, that would be easy to do. But it's not. It is so easy for me to run roughshod over the characters and say, oh, this is what I think your life is. This is what I think 
you should be doing now. This is who I think you should be. But they've taught me to listen. Even those storytelling games we ran, they're great because here are people playing characters, but they have minds and lives of their own. And I have to sit there as the one guiding the story and ask not what I think should happen, but what do you do? What would you like? What do you want? What do you think happens next? Tell me, show me, let me see. That right there is extremely powerful. How often do we go about our own lives saying how we see other people and say, oh, I think you should act like this. Or you hear a story in it and you say, I don't know how you act the way you do. I, I, if I were you in that situation, I would act this way. How many times do we put our own, our, our own mindset onto somebody else? There, the damage that does. There used to be, I don't know if it's still held on to as deeply, but the idea of the golden rule, treat yourself or treat others as you wish to be treated yourself. And I think it is reprehensible because it is entirely self-centered. The whole world then revolves around who you are and how you think it's what should be. We would in anthropology talk about the platinum or the silver rule, the idea that you should treat others how they wish to be treated. Because that requires inquiry, that requires engagement, that requires asking and conversation. And in anthropology, they had to learn that the hard way. Here we are as the alleged experts going out to study other people, to capture and document their information, their lives, to then provide to those of us who are intrigued by it back at home. And in the instance of Nisa, which is a classic book in the field now, one of the folks being studied sat down and asked, why? What do we get out of that? And tell you what, this thing captures voice. If I say something, it will stay in there, right? Okay, fine. You're telling my story. I don't care why you're here. You're telling my story. That's the one you're going to share. And Marjorie, pardon, Marjorie Shostak is standing and standing there thinking, that's not how this relationship is supposed to work. I am the anthropologist. You're the subject. I capture you. I define you so that others can understand you by that to which niece's reply more or less is how how and why could you know me better than i know myself you think you know me fine i'll tell you who i am it's such a fascinating in some ways dated book now it's written i think in 1985 86 but it was a seminal work for challenging the precepts of the time. And I know I've been in fights with other writers about how a story should be written. I, I can tell you how I think it should be because that's how I write. I'm not going to say that's how we should write because that's silly. <laughs> I know people who have to plan everything out and that drives me insane. <laughs> uh, for them, it is it brings peace of mind. It brings certainty. Why would I want to deny that from the people who need that in order to write? So yes, when Stiebel says, I don't know how you take this confusion and make anything out of it, what he's truly saying is that terrifies me and I don't understand it. But more importantly, I don't want to try to. The greatest fight I had with him was over what to do with Adam and his father, Joseph. Stiebel wanted Joseph to be the monster, the villain, the person, the antagonist driving everything forward. 
And he said as such to me when I was trying to make changes to the story. And my immediate reply was, oh, I'm missing a beat. So he says, well, fine. Just take Joseph, cut him out, start from a cliche and go over. Just start from the ground up and rewrite him again. And here I am in a class of 15, 20 other writers. And my immediate reply was, I can't, that's murder. He looked at me like I was out of my mind. Like I spouted or was sprouting tongues. But it's not the characters, it's not the other person's fault that I don't understand them, that I didn't understand them well enough to make that life known and available to someone else. It took years for me to truly sit down and ask and find out who Joseph was. And when I did, I developed and grew a great sense of compassion for him. Is he an alcoholic? Is he abusive? Is he angry? Is he complicated? Yes, so all of those things. But now I know why. And it's, it changed the entire way I opened the story. Here's a man who's told by his wife, we can't save our son. So he has a choice. He can either believe that wholeheartedly and do nothing. But if he does nothing, then that looks like he doesn't love and doesn't care. And he can't abide by that. But if he tries and he fails, as she's telling him he will, as they will, does that mean he's not good enough? He's not strong enough? He's not capable enough? He doesn't love enough? Five, ten years go by of everything, that constant argument and bickering and fighting over whether we'll be able to save our son, whether it's even possible or right to, and the bitterness and the anger with each failure, compounding and increasing, a little drink here, a little drink there, wandering out of town for a while to get his bearings again. There was a line I wrote a while ago where he and his grandson are traveling, Jaden's five years old, and the kid is Young children want to ask those awful questions sometimes. Why? Why did you beat my dad? Or why is there that scar on his face? And I remember being on the trail, thinking of who Joseph was and my understanding of him. And I thought, well, okay, does, does he lie here? Would he want to? No, he wouldn't. There's no reason to. He knows and understands why he did this. He might even have believed it was the right or only thing to do at the time. And here I am standing on the trail. And to write these characters, I have to live their lives in the moments. It's incredibly enervating. And I put myself in his mind and his life, and the words that come out are, I thought I could beat it out of him. Just that concession, I tried everything else. And at the end of the day, I thought I could beat it out of him. If nothing else, just that. And of course that fails too, because it's a false goal he set for himself that was never going to lead to the thing he wanted. But I would never have found those moments that made this man, that showed him to be so pained and angry and bitter and resentful and frustrated at the life they've had that he chose. And that in turn gave me a deeper understanding of Adam because here he is being raised by this fight and this conflict that's always quiet and hidden in the background. So where does the book begin? Adam standing in the snow at 10 years old, having listened to his parents fight upstairs and just trying to figure out, he knows it's his fault somehow. He feels it, it's about him. 
but he doesn't know why. And the rest of the prologue just follows from there. As his mother comes back out to pull him back inside, as we learn about this man they've invited into the house whose judgment is over whether their child should live or die, whether he thinks he's right or wrong, and the fight the parents have being over whether this man should have been invited at all with his choice he's capable of making. The thing I gained in that week from the dream toward the end of it afterwards, where I had another dream, woke up and realized the end of the story was clarity. It wasn't confidence, it wasn't certainty, it was clarity. When I went on the trail for the first time after having accepted this whole king and prince mythology that Adam carries around of copy of the little prince in Russian or Malyanki Parampas, I started to ask and wonder myself, wonder why. The thing I got stuck on for a moment was a scene in the prologue, the second scene where Joseph digs out a box out of the pond and hands it to Adam and says, do not open this until we're gone. And I, as the writer, have to wonder, okay, what's in the box? The reader doesn't necessarily have to know, but I do. Because I have to convey the truth of it being there, the weight of it, the impact of it, there in the box. Now, in this world, there are those full of fire, both literally and figuratively, and those who dream too much. They're both dangerous. Adam's the former. And here I am asking myself, what is in this box? And the first thing that comes to mind is, it's his heart. And of course, the immediate reaction is, that's impossible. He'd be dead. You cannot have your heart separated from you and your body and put in a box and still be alive. But what if you can? What if you could? What if it's happened? If this, if all of this is possible, what else can be real and occur in this world? The fellow, Nick, whose wedding I was at recently, he over the years continuously pushed me to accept the fable like the fantastic elements in the story and I fought him tooth and nail. And here I am going, there's an element of fairy tale to this. If I allow it, it changes everything. But I feel there is something in the heart here, not in the narrative heart, but in my heart here, something that will resonate with people. I just have to find it. I have to allow myself the chance and the opportunity to follow that path. So I did. And at the end of that week, had another dream, went back on the trail, and I found the end of the first book. And sure enough, it comes right back to that old frozen kingdom and where people were buried and what's there. And all those images and symbols, things that had emerged in the prologue, came full circle around again. And then, as fantastic as that story seems at the beginning and ending, because I follow characters, who they are, what they want, and why. Whatever else emerges out of that is what happens. If it's fantastic, if it's scientific, whatever. I don't care about the genre. I care about the story and their lives. But I actually smiled. I sat down there having written the end of the book and said to myself, there it is. There you are. Now I see you. So everything I write now, I'm on chapter 15 a few months after this, about a year or less. Because I have clarity, because I know where it ends, I know where it's going. Even if I don't know the exact words, I know the beats it ends on, the emotional heart and the truth of it. And I can guide the rest of it there, or if not guide, allow myself to be led there by the characters, by their needs, by the story itself. 
So if we're talking about leadership or extrapolating from that, yes, I am perhaps the leader of this enterprise, this project, this existence, but I am by no means the one with the power. I'm the lame goat who follows from behind, except on the way home. I love that. And, and there's so much power in, in recognizing that from a, a leadership perspective. You may be the leader, but you don't necessarily have the power to really accomplish the amazing things that you have in your mind. You have a part of, in the story, right? You may mm-hmm. guide the story but you need to understand the people who are playing the parts in the story. You need to understand what it is they want, their desires, their goals, their dreams. What are their motivations? What, what is their, who is their family and how do you guide them to their own goals and dreams along the path to the ultimate goal and dream of your business, of your enterprise, of your family? What, what are the goals of your family? I am just the instrument this is performed by. I think back to, and I shared this with Sharon, but that episode won't come out for a while. I could think back to the book fair where Robert Bly, the poet, was asked his favorite moment, his favorite experience with poetry. And he says, I went to a recital and I heard this woman, the student, read one of my pieces. And the way she played it, the way she performed it, was I felt like a composer who had finally found the most perfect musician, the the precise instrument by which to bring life to the piece. She made it go places I had never been before. It wasn't his work that mattered. It was someone else's experience of it, someone else's reading and play of it. And I think the most essential part of being a leader beyond all of these other elements is the realization and understanding that your desire is not the end point. It is the beginning. When someone else comes to you and says, I want your invention, your creation, your service, how you think, what arises from that is unique and valuable and new. I can write a book. What you take from that book, I can try to intend or guide or go on late night shows and talk about. But your reading experience of that is something you own that's unique to you. And I should have no reason to take that away from you, nor should I have the power to, because that's your life and your experience. And at the end, you let go because it grows beyond you, because it is its own mind, its own child, and it's not yours anymore. There's a scene where Adam is arguing with one of his friends about raising his son. And he realizes that he's following a similar path to his father, trying to limit, trying to terrify, trying to restrict, because the world outside is big and angry and scary. He's been there. He wants his son to feel just home at home and small and safe. But setting those barriers in cruel and bitter ways is not a father. As much as he's aware that setting those barriers makes him cruel and bitter as a father, He is not sure of any other way to do it. And I would think, you know, we all think we're going to be better than those who brought us to where we are. We think we'll learn from our parents and become different. We become different people. I'm rambling a little bit as I get to my next point because I'm a little tired. 
But <laughs> you can feel free to cut this. But the not at all. I know. I do this too. You have to let go. There does come a time for that. And there is a joy to be had in watching where that life will lead. I, I'm a storyteller, so I'll say this through a story. Irma and Rocky Kalish were two of my writing teachers my first semester there, and Irma wrote for All in the Family. And she asked us one day, what do you want out of your writing? Do you want to be famous? Do you want money? Do you want to be known? Do you want your book published? She said, I want a lot of things out of my writing. And then one day I met with a friend who I hadn't seen in many years. And she told me how she had survived a breast cancer scare. And I think about it later on. And I asked her why, what got her through that. And she said, this will sound funny, but do you remember that episode of All in the Family where she's, she was from Mammogram? I thought, wait, well, if that can happen to her, it might be able. To, it might happen. Maybe that's what I'm experiencing. Maybe it's okay. Maybe maybe I should go to the doctor too, and just make sure. And Irma's thinking, I wrote that. I wrote that episode. But I don't need to tell her that because that doesn't matter. What matters, and what I'm realizing right now, is that it changed and saved this person's life. And if that's all that episode ever does, that's fantastic. And maybe it took me years to find that out. I think that is part of the joy of creating anything, business and enterprise, a service, something, a movie, a book, a podcast even. You never truly know, nor will you, or nor should you set the expectation to know what the impact or the effect of that will be. But you should be open and aware and allow yourself to find out when it does. Back when I was debating whether I should be a writer or something else, because you can write a book, you can get it published, you can get tenure, then you teach, and that's a life. But if you want to be a writer, you write books, books and books and books and books, your whole life. I had to find another book to write. I had to think there was another one in me. And it took me the whole summer until I wrote a series I'll probably write later. Not now, and here's why. My coach asked me, do I think I can finish this book, the one I'm on now? And I said, yes, because I am now the person I needed to be to be able to write it. I wasn't five, 10 years ago. I am now. The other series, I'll get to where I need to be. I'll be who I need to be at a certain point in time to write that. Is that now? No. I do know my friend who's a neuroscientist who moonlights as a screenwriter will be involved because he and I talked about the metaphysics of that world and there's a whole equation he wants to write for it. And I am excited by what he will come up with. Because I want to give him just the barest bones, the the core elements or components of what make this place what it is, and see what he defines from that. That dialogue will lead me to places I did not expect to go. Writers, we think we're lonely. We think we do this by ourselves. No, your characters are there, your friends are there, your family is there. Someone's making sure you eat and you go outside and you catch sunlight again. And I'll probably talk about this more in other future episodes, but it's something I've been chewing over for a nonfiction book. There's no such thing as a self-made person. We don't get anywhere in our own lives without someone else there along the way. Definitely. I 100% agree with that. 
It's in, in the United States, we have almost what I would call the mythology of independence, right? <laughs> Where we see independence as this ultimate goal to get to, but really we're taking a concept that had a, a basis in independence from tyranny and turning it into its own concept. And really the idea was to get away from tyranny so that we could get to a higher state of interdependence. But the irony is we only defeated tyranny through that interdependence. <laughs> you don't overwhelm an oppressor on your own. There's no such thing as the guy with his lone gun sitting on the hill shooting off the entire army. They had to learn skirmish warfare from someone, from somewhere, from other times and experiences. We had to get allies from other parts of the world. We had to be acknowledged by other nations for us to be recognized as one. The U.S. didn't happen out of nowhere, but we like to believe that. We exist ex nihilo because we are the promised land and its chosen people. And that's a story, that's a zeitgeist we still tell ourselves because it is a unifying one. It allows people of different, well, experiences and lives to come together under a central idea. But it's also an isolating one, because if you don't buy into it and believe it fully, you don't belong here. I used to describe our country, the, the way we tell ourselves our stories about it, as a teenager. We're throwing off everything that came before us. It's all wrong. It's all screwed up. We're going to be better this time. We're going to make it right, man. <laughs> We'll grow up eventually. We're not there yet. We're only 200 and some odd years old, 300 and some odd years old in parts. It's like when Joan Rivers was asked, bless her heart, how old she was. And she said, well, parts of me are 30. <laughs> parts of us are five. As a parts of us are still in their infancy. As countries go. And people in general, that, that's like, that's so much of society. We, we think we're a certain age, and yet the way we act is, is not even near that age. There are people who are five years old, and they're in their 80s. And there are you, people who are in their teens who are in their 80s. <laughs> you, want, you want a revelation. Think about the number of people in your daily life that do something, or that have an idiot moment. You just catch at that moment of their supreme idiocy that day or that week. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> Which we all have. <laughs> and that's all you'll ever know about them. But you're just catching them in that moment. As in all likelihood, others are finding us in that moment as well. Where we go and do a stupid thing publicly or privately and then realize, oh, that was supremely dumb. <laughs> and everyone's watching. And... Uh, so yes, it's easy to think of, oh, I'm surrounded by idiots. Yes, because there are so few filters to the idiocy now. There are so many ways and times and opportunities to do the dumb thing. I would tell folks I work with, you want to tweet, put it out, write it down first, type it into an app. Maybe it's too angry the first time. Maybe you think about what else you should share in the meantime, or maybe you realize you never have to be part of that conversation in the first place or that responding isn't the best thing you could do. Going out acting in response to that is. And this isn't moralizing. It's just, I think, as you were saying before, taking the time to reflect. 
And it's hard because we like to chase goals. There are so many things that have to be done. And when you're chasing the goalpost, there's never time to stop and reflect. And yet when you don't stop and reflect, you more often than not don't reach the goalpost. It's kind of like you see the goal at the top of the mountain and when you don't reflect, you're, you're trying to climb up like a sheer rock face with no grapple holds on it. And if you would just stop for a minute and look around you, you'd notice that there's a really easy path right next to you because I'll you're not stopping. You're trying to go up this, this face that you can't get up. So I'll share with you a production mistake we did last year we made last year. It was one of our sequences of doing short run stories and we had a number of folks part, play, performing improv roles. We had one guest star come in later, later into the recording. The first big, and this was a planning mistake, we booked two episodes one after the other and left no time in between to handle transition or shifting mind. It was just, it was a confluence of bad schedules that had no other way of solving the need to record these things on the same night. And mid-recording of the first, one of the people had to leave during our, effectively, our commercial break. I should have, at that point, called the first recording and said, hey, we hit a decent narrative point. We're done for tonight. We would have had about half an hour to recuperate, plan for the next one, and execute properly. But this was supposed to have been the end of this whole session, this whole series. And now here we are on an unintended cliffhanger without any knowledge of when we're going to have more time, and no response from the, from the guy who left. He just disappeared. So we need something. So I pushed forward, which meant when we did our fourth and final recording, we were trying to wrap around things that did not work narratively or socially within the group either and trying to make the best of it. Here's where it came to a point, though, and this is why Goalpost cued me into this story. There are rules that adjudicate how and what you can do. That's part of what makes allows for the fun here and for there are things to be discovered. One of our players loves to define a goal and develop a strategy to achieve that. That's his fun. That's what he likes doing. And if you've ever led a team, you have to know what your teams find fun as individuals, what satisfies their curiosity, what feeds them, what sustains them, because that's what they'll commit to most easily. One of the other players likes to shift the goalposts and discover <laughs> what that can do in terms of redefining the scene. So when you have a wily coyote scenario of the goals roadrunnering over here and the guy with the plan following behind, that can create a bit of humor and tension. As long as those two are in agreement that this is the kind of game we're playing here, as long as they both agree and define that we are engaging in the chase, and we'll both find fun in that. It's enjoyable both for the team and for the audience, the, the witnesses to the show or to the experience here, the thing we're producing. But if there's no agreement that this is the game we're playing, Wiley's going to get angry and wonder Quickly. why. Quite. Now, let's add in our guest star, who is a bit of a wild card, doesn't understand the chase is occurring here, and decides to throw himself into the narrative more or less being the greased oil here that Wiley slips on while chasing the goals as they're moving. <laughs> so here's the angry coyote 
finally about to grab the roadrunner, the thing he's after, and here comes the oil spill out of nowhere, makes him go flying off, debilitating him, tying him up in a different narrative arc, denying him choice and agency, the things he wanted and needed most to do what he needed to do. And this all sounds humorous, but think about this in terms of team dynamic. You bring someone in mid-project and their way of doing things usurps the way your team has of being. There's going to be a conflict. And it came to a head. The guy who wanted to chase the plan had no means of I wish to accomplish it. And here are two people actively, even if not intentionally, denying him the opportunity to do so. So he gets angry, very angry, to the point where we can't record and I have to spend half an hour trying to fully wrap my head around what's happening and seeing if we can, as a group, reconcile this, make everyone see why they went the way they did and what led to that, and then how we can resolve it amicably one, because whether the recording works, you know, we lose an episode, we still need to have the team. A project lives or dies, fine, but you still have the team the people you're working with daily, your friends, your family, whoever that is, they're still there in your lives. You have to consider that and take that into consideration rather when you're in these moments of conflict. And after I finally brought him back to the conversation and said, okay, here's my understanding of what's happened and why. I'm going to go grab a cup of tea. When we get back, you guys tell me what you want to do. When I was younger, I would have moderated that entire conversation. I would have been there with my hands in the every moment and beat of it. But I had achieved what I needed to there, which was to bring him back into the conversation, make sure that his feelings and experience were being honored and that the other people who are horrified at how things had happened and felt offended at his by his reaction and surprised by it were also honored and that we had a means by which to move beyond and grow from this. So the moment that conversation starts, I leave. Because I'm exhausted and angry and frustrated too, and I need my space. But more important than that, or equally important, they need to figure out for themselves what to do next and what they want out of that. And that's not for me to guide. Those are hard moments. These are people you work with regularly. You think you know them. You believe you do. And you do. But sometimes even when you know and work with people every day, you can see that car coming down. You can see Wiley heading for the roadrunner, the oil spill occurring, and you just, you're not there to stop it. Or you're too late to. So we finished the recording and then had about half an hour afterwards to kind of work over and say, hey, Things broke here and here and here. What can we do next time to prevent that, to avoid it, or to make sure that we have more tools in place by which to act? So yeah, self-reflection is vital. And sometimes the feedback you'll receive is harsh if it's other people asking why you haven't yet. Sometimes it's really harsh, especially if you haven't done it in a really long time or really ever done it. It comes out because, because so often we think we act in one way and then we come to find out whether by accident because we don't actually understand how we act or through others' perceptions of how we act, 
that it comes off completely different than we thought. One of the most salient pieces of feedback the fellow who was angry provided, he felt that he was given too few opportunities to act in the spotlight, to shine, to, to be who he was and do what he wanted to do. And yeah, we're talking storytelling games, but the, the framing, the context here is almost irrelevant. If someone you work with comes to you and say, hey, I wanted to feel like I, my contributions mattered and I don't feel like they did or that people were aware of that or know that. That can destroy a team right there. Mm-hmm. As it nearly did. Because here he is and I know him. I know he will take that frustration and try to solve it on his own up until the point where he can't and then he'll get angry. I've known him most of my life. So I should have seen that sign earlier. I didn't because I was too distracted by all the other goals I was chasing. Not being present, not being aware, not being there. So when I sit here telling and saying these things, it's not because I am any wise guru who comes down from the mountain once a, time, once a month to pronounce from my empty teacup the wisdoms I've gained from drinking <laughs> the air. <laughs> we will inevitably break stuff. It is part of life, whether it's parts of ourselves, parts of others, or the things around us. What matters most is how, matters most is how we pick that up. And I guess I'll end here with uh, a Zen cone that I love. I have a collection of these illustrated Zen cones from an artist 15, 20 years ago. And they're hilarious, they're funny, but they're also quite serious. And this one I've told a few times, but it's salient. There's a master and he has his favorite teacup and his apprentice, his student knows that. So every day as part of his role, he's been assigned the task of polishing said teacup and making sure it's spotless and clean and ready for the afternoon ceremony. And then the day comes when he's just fancifully preoccupied about something. Does it really matter? No, but he's preoccupied about something and he polishes the cup and oh, his hands slip and out flies the cup. Tumbling down his hands onto the stone tile and shatters, just pieces upon pieces shatters on the ground. And he's horrified. This is his master's favorite cup. No other will do. There is no replacement for that. So he gets down on his hands and knees and he gathers every piece up dutifully as best he can and takes the hems of his robe and walks over to his master and says, kneeling, Master, tell me about death and the end of things. And his master proceeds to go on this whole long, wise tirade about how death is the natural conclusion of life. It all, it is cyclical. It arrives to the best of us, the worst of us. Da, 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 da. And you can shaggy dog this as long as you like. It's best if you do, actually. And at the very end, the student on his knees goes up to his master and says, Master, I am afraid death has come upon your teacup. <laughs> Now, in the illustrated version, the final frame is the old man scowling because he has been had. <laughs> he can react poorly, but it will undermine everything in the lesson he has so dutifully provided. <laughs> I love it. 
that's wisdom. It is sometimes humorous. It is sometimes the thing that slaps you in the face at unexpected times. It is the moment where you sit down and ask yourself, finally. But you damn sure need it to lead. Otherwise, you're just the arrogant bastard with a crown. <laughs> oh, I love it. Absolutely love it. So I hope that gave you something to work with. It wasn't at all where I was <laughs> intending to go, but that's really the way of these things. We went in so many awesome directions. And like, if, if I could have talked, there would have been so many things I could have delved into, but it would have killed the story delving into them. Um, and and I, I mean, things we've gone through, we've gone through self-leadership, We've gone through getting over self-criticisms. We've gone into getting over the criticisms of others. We've gone into team dynamics. We've gone into tragedy and how do you overcome tragedy? And how do you witness tragedy in other people's lives? And how do you work with that? And then we've also talked into, into just how do you obtain wisdom? What is wisdom? How, how do we understand things? And talked about what is the role of a leader? What should your role be? Are you living into that role? Or are you trying to put your own preconceptions into the role? There's so much depth into that entire thing we've talked about. Absolutely phenomenal. I, you know, I used to, and I think I told you this, I, I used to define myself by many things. I'm a this, I'm a that, I'm a PR, marketing, social media, yada, yada. And more and more, before the conference, but since after, in the times after too, I've had conversations with people and the first thing they say afterwards is, that storytelling, do more of that. And I laugh because it's not a role we've defined as much anymore as we used to. It's an old role. It still persists. There are usually other titles attached to it, creative lead, stuff like that. But it's it fits somewhere between educator and entertainer. And it is usually focused on having people sit down, gather, and reflect. My rabbi is a phenomenal storyteller. Some of that comes from practice. Some of it comes from the horrors he's endured. I won't tell his story because it's not mine to tell, but there's a tremendous moment to be had when he sits there and gives his first reading of the book of Jonah after his son Jonah has died. And his first two lines are, I, I don't want to be here today doing this, knowing how I've named my son and why but I know it's time. I want to, when he's ready, ask him if he will be able to share that story because it's a powerful one and meaningful. And he's an incredible storyteller. I've, I myself have benefited from 
many an incredible storyteller for my years, but I've also been telling stories since I was two. And I'll never forget applying to jobs back out of college and grad school and saying that and people looking at me incredulous. What do you mean you were writing and telling stories at two? It doesn't seem real, but it's true. And I tried to disown that for many years to say that wasn't who I was, but that's silly. That is just silly. So I'm a storyteller. I tell stories, I find them, I share them, and I help others find theirs. And if they know theirs already, I help them revise it because if there's one thing a story never is, it's done or final. I, uh, I probably should go into the whole like plugging and other stuff at this point. I was hoping <laughs> to have my website done by now. It's not. Say la vie. But well, what will that website be? The URL will be here be tigers. That's with a Y. And I could tell you many things about why it's tigers with a Y. But if you've ever read Blake's Tiger Tiger, that's one third of why the tiger in the title is there. I wrote the prologue, read his poem and realized the entirety of the imagery was buried within that piece. I learned a long time ago, rather than trying to write the story, that I should let it find me. And I'm always surprised by those little revelations. Okay, the other one I'll share because it's simple. I sent in the, from the prologue some notes to my illustrator, and she sent me a draft back, and there's a little tiger on the draft she sends, right? Mm-hmm. And I look at this little illustration of a tiger and I think back to the birthday cake I had when I was two. And I loved at that point, Winnie the Pooh, the television show. Mm-hmm. We lived in the city and this cake my folks had made for me had little bears and little tigers. But the tiger on that cake when I was two looked exactly like the, way, the one this illustrator in Germany had designed for me at 34. She, and I've never met in person, I've never spoken of this to her. And when I see that illustration, my first thought is get out of my mind. <laughs> so the tigers are there so it will be herebetigers.com you can follow the podcast here be tigers on google play itunes spotify stitcher and one other i'm always forgetting and i'll probably remember later we're part of the eso network which has been around nine years now it started off as a set of doctor who shows but we have i think 30 shows in the network now spanning everything from movies to cigars to wrestling to Still Doctor Who, to our weird panel show, The Geekly Oddcast, and the sister side of that, Outer Worlds, which is where we do a lot of our storytelling. Those are our weeklies. And then mine monthly, Here Be Tigers, will have some new episodes out soon, but I've been kind of re-implementing and designing things since the New Media Summit. So our first episode is probably going to be out beginning of April or sometime around there. Cody, I know you're going to be on the show at some point. So I would to love to be on the show. Uh, that sounds fantastic. Uh, and you are a phenomenal storyteller. Um, there, there's so much wisdom in the stories that you tell. Um, thank you for sharing them. Well, I'm glad someone can benefit from them. Because <laughs> I know it's taken me plenty of time to. <laughs> As all good things do, right? <laughs> oh, there are 
look up at some point the tale of King Solomon's ring, the classic phrase, Gamzeya for this too shall pass. It's a, he sits out on a quest where he sends one of his servants on a quest to find the thing that will make a happy man sad and a sad man happy, no matter what. And this is what the man brings back to him, a ring that says, inscribed on it, Gamzeya Yavor, this too shall pass. It's like Ecclesiastes in a little story. I love it. There, I, you know, I'm a magpie. I collect these things. They're just, they're part of the joy in my life. So they stick in my mind until I find a use for them for someone else or myself. But yeah, they're, if you want an idea of what the show is like, there's a plan. And then I toss it to the side in favor of the more interesting conversation. <laughs> and, and that is usually how things become more interesting anyhow, right? There, there, it's true. There were a couple times that I have wished I had the recorder going for that initial conversation because that was so dynamic and fascinating that by the time we had the, the actual one, all of the, the insight was already played out and it was, just a, it was just a performance. But I've learned since then, you can have a certain amount of conversation to provide people the time to think and reflect. So that when you ask some of those harder questions, not that I'll tell you all the questions I'll ask, but you can have some time to think about the ones that you need the actual time to reflect on. I know for you, you said something at the media summit, which I want to dig further into, which is the idea that a hero should have the strength for two people. And I want to dig into that idea of heroism. We have so many ways of defining it or presuming definitions of it in this country. I'm curious as to what yours are but that will be for another time. You can also follow us on the Patreon site, which is patreon.com slash tigers. We post bits and pieces of the story there as I write it. There's also the podcast, which we're now rolling out little short lessons. So if you want smaller versions of this, like five to 10 minute ones, where we focus on an idea, where to begin, how to write a character, dialogue, pacing, Dave, our co-host from Otter Worlds, and I, tend to dig into moments on that. We'll also do advice on whatever you're writing. And then we have the workshop itself, which is by Discord. That's once a week on Sundays, although we'll probably start rolling out a second class soon. And you can subscribe to all of those for a coffee cup a month at the start. It's a little more for the classes, but you know, I like to eat too. <laughs> Don't we all? <laughs> the website will be more focused on individualized coaching services. So for folks, whether it's fiction or not, who have stories to write, and this is for publication, for self-reflection and understanding. For speaking for, even, for, because for the most powerful speakers are storytellers. Absolutely. And by and large, they hit the third objective, which is to change someone else's mind, give them an idea or a course of action or inspire a course of action, I should say. So all of those are reasons I will help you define or write your story. And if you don't know what your story is, we'll start at the beginning, which is finding that. That's mostly what the site will focus on. So that allows me to work with students who are trying to find enough money to buy coffee for themselves too. Because I personally don't think that even if you're doing well financially, you should shy away from the people who need what you do, but can't quite afford the entirety of it. Because I've been on the other side where people could only work with me out of the generosity of their heart. And that's partly how I am where I'm at now. So who am I to deny that opportunity to others? Well, and one thing to think about there is that there's always a way to pay. 
that's that's something that with some of the the entrepreneurs I work with in my business, I have to get them to wrap their minds around because they want high ticket customers, of course, but not everyone that they're looking to serve can do that. And if they haven't established their name, sometimes it's not the name of the game isn't get people to pay the money. Sometimes the name of the game is what is the value of what you're providing and how can they obtain how can they give you that value in a way that might be different? That student B, when I gave her that exercise to find joy, to go play with something that she wasn't great at, toss aside her expectations, she came back to me with the following. She said, there's a webcomic artist we both follow and like, Fanta, who does illustrations for the book as well. Beautiful watercolor flowers, part of her design work. B said, I did a small illustration, a mostly gray piece of paper, and then at the very top, a few flowers. That's where I feel I'm at right now. Most of my life is a wash in gray, but there's a little bit of brightness there. I want to do this again and again each time as I learn more and more to reflect for myself how I've grown and how I've changed. And I asked her, did you find joy in that? Was this fun for you? She says, absolutely. I have a group of people now that I can work with who inspire me to continue to write. And I think back to what Steve said, we're helping people get back up on their feet. If that's not valuable, I don't know what is. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Leadership Guide. Please make sure to go on to your favorite player of choice and there rate the show, then subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. Then, if you truly want to be a legendary leader, Share this episode with someone that you know will be impacted, because legendary leaders fuel not only themselves, but others as well to their heroic potential. If you want to unlock your heroic potential faster, then you will want to join the League of Legendary Leaders, an association of leaders who are dedicated to unlocking their heroic potential, unlocking the heroic potential of others, and where legendary leaders are born. The League of Legendary Leaders also has a goal to raise $100,000 monthly to support nonprofits that are actively undertaking causes to impact the future in areas including homelessness, neurodiversity, character strength, positive psychological research, and more. Seize the call now. Go to www.theleadership.guide and click Get Free Guidance Now to propel you on your journey to legendary leadership. I'm your host, Cody Dakota, and I'm honored to have spent this time with you today. My final message for you, and listen closely. It's time. Wake up your heroic potential. Let go of your fears and anxieties, and let's discover what is possible on your journey to become a legendary leader. Emerge and become who you were meant to be. 